Welcome to the second episode of the EM Conversations here at Network 5 Emergency Medicine. Today we are going to talk to Dr. Kavita Varshney, who is the Deputy Director of Westmead Hospital's Emergency Department. Kavita is an emergency physician who has a special interest in disaster medicine and clinical education. Kavita is also the first doctor in Australia to be accredited to run the Stanford Program for Clinical Educators. I was a Westmead medical student and then stayed on to be a Westmead intern. I think in a lot of ways, timing is everything. And I was at Westmead when ED was, I'll say popular, that, that may not be the right word. There was a cohort of us that all chose to do it at the same time. And so as intern JMO, we obviously rotated through Westmead and its secondments, but I kept coming back to it and I enjoyed the time when I was in the ED. And I think we all probably, all of us that trained at that time, found a mentor. They weren't official. It was never, there was no official mentoring or anything like that, but we just found a person that we sort of were sympathetic to or was sympathetic to us and sort of followed them around, really. That was effectively what it was like. And I ended up, I was coming back to ED to do my overtime and extra shifts. And so, yeah, I just found myself enjoying it. I did do it at Mount Druid and I did also do it at Orange so that I worked out it wasn't just Westmead ED that I liked, but it was yeah. ED in general. And then, yeah, chose to sort of start training. And like I said, I was with a cohort that was was very strong cohort. We all kind of went through together. We were all JMOs and had trained here together and stayed together mm-hmm. and trained and kind of went through. So I had really good study buddies for primary and then fellowship. The consultant group was fantastic. So, you know, just learning from them. That's, I think, how I got to the ED part of it. If you'd asked me when I was a student, what was I going to do? I don't know that emergency was necessarily obvious to me or even in my mix. And then as a junior, I enjoyed obstetrics and gynae. I enjoyed infectious diseases. And then I enjoyed emergency medicine. And I think I was probably going to do one of the three where I was as an RMO1. I was like, I'm going to do one of those things. And then eventually, yeah, emergency sort of popped out as the as the winner. What about ED interested you? It's interesting hearing you talk about it because I think if I had to rationalise my own decision, a lot of it has to do with the people that I worked with. I'm hearing a similar thing with with what you're saying, but... What was ED like back then? What attracted you to the specialist? Well, it was interesting. There was, I think, four or five consultants who now, you know, when I look at how many of us there are and we still yeah. have so many jobs that need doing, I think how those four or five people managed it at that time was amazing, including teaching us, but not just teaching us, but like inspiring us to want to join and, and taking time and, like you know, paying attention to us. It was amazing. I always have liked a certain number of features about emergency. So first is the variety. I think I'm best when I'm, if you like, the problem solver. I will sort of meet the patient, try to figure out what their signs and symptoms are and try to create the differential and put it a bit together like a puzzle. I was much better at doing that than I was at, you know, reviewing people who'd been in the respiratory ward for five days with the same symptoms and someone had already put a, a label on them as to what was wrong with them. I really liked that variety. I like the interaction with all the different groups. So, you know, the pre-hospital teams, the medical teams, the nursing teams, allied health, the patients, the relatives. So all that buzz or noise, if you like, I quite enjoyed all of that communication. I do like creating some sort of system or calm out of the chaos. I like the cleaning up. I do find I'm good at that and so I I like it. And so, I mean, I was just very lucky. I liked emergency medicine, but emergency medicine also suited me. It would have been awful if I'd loved it and it just didn't suit my personality. I'm very good when I leave here to leave it. I I really don't take it home. 
which I think if I perseverated on each patient, I think it would be very difficult to do this job for a long time. Obviously, while I'm with people, like I give them my full attention and as much of my care and expertise as I can. But when I've finished with that patient and handed them on, then, then I move on to the next person. When I look back, certainly from my own training, when I think about consultants upon whom I've sort of moulded my clinical practice, you're one of the names that comes up from my mind at least. I find that the really good managers of the floor or people that team lead really well kind of find a way to impose themselves on the chaos, like, you know, impose aspects of their personality and of themselves and gain that somehow, harness that control. That was kind of emblematic of the way you practice when I've worked with you, at least clinically. It's interesting that you say things like problem solving and systems management. I think that sort of hints as to what you pursued after you had accomplished your clinical things. And I feel like there's some mirrors there, at least some parallels to be drawn. What was the first thing you got yourself into? Like I said, by the time I met you, you were doing all of the things. How did the journey start for you? It's funny you say that. So I, um, and again, I think it's sort of where are you at certain times of your life? And I was a very you know, junior to middle registrar at Westmead when the Olympics were coming. So I, I was not in a position of having to organise anything or do anything, but I could observe everything that was happening and all the work and the planning that was happening around us. And I found it interesting and it was the big system stuff. It was mm. the, um, you know, how do we plan for a mass casualty event? How do we plan for the decontamination of patients? All of those sorts of things. And so I asked a few questions here and there and people sort of went, oh, you seem a bit interested. You should go and do this course. And so someone sent me this thing to a course, which was turned out it was MIMS, yeah. um, which is Major Incident Medical Management. And now I teach MIMS and I teach hospital MIMS. But it was purely that I was interested. I was in the right place. I could see things happening. I could understand the benefit of why these things were important. It is very holistic. It is very big picture rather than just the care of one patient. It was the care of the whole system. And then I volunteered at the Olympics and the Paralympics, which was a really exciting experience. And again, I absolutely loved it. I went on to sort of take that a bit further. So I was very lucky. I went to London in 2012 and was volunteering there as well, partly because I I had, you know, obviously it's English speaking country and I had my GMC registration and I thought, well, why not? And so I applied and they were like, great, you've done it before. This is fantastic. And of course, obviously, I was more senior by the time I went to London. So um, I got sort of slightly more senior positions to do, which was exciting. But from that first Olympic experience, I think that sort of started me on that path, to be fair. I started looking for more courses and I found there was literally two masters that you could do. One was out of the UK and one was the one that I chose to do, which was the European masters. It was five universities come together, which from Belgium and Sweden and Italy and I can't remember the others now. It's basically a one-year online program and it was a two-week living component and I put myself forward and I did it and I did it straight away. So I pretty much did my fellowship in October, November and I started that master's in the February straight up because I knew if I had a big gap I would be, oh, I don't want to go back to studying and I don't want to. So I did it and, and at the time when I did that master's I was I think the second or third person in Australia to do it. So there were not many people doing this um there were not many courses to choose from and then of the few that that were there there weren't many people that had done it so yeah so when I completed that course which was the one-year program I now had a you know an an additional qualification which I think helps just that scientific background helps yeah as I said I'd started teaching on some of the courses so MIMS and hospital MIMS and introduced a CBR course here so a local version so just starting to sort of put some of those practical courses into into reality, really. 
I didn't do this from scratch. I mean, Ross Crampton and Ken Harrison and there was a few others before them as well that had done a lot of work in this space already. So there was something for me to build upon. So they had put some foundations and so I could build upon that, which was really exciting. And then I guess once you start doing things and people go, oh, yep, this person's interested, then you kind of get approached. And I actually got tapped to help organise the planning and preparation when we were sitting was hosting World Youth Day exciting and then yeah. from that I got to do the similar sort of thing when Sydney was hosting the World Masters game so yeah it was just a bit of being in the right place at the right time but obviously having the interest in the field doing the additional qualification and then putting that into practice and people starting to go oh yeah that's someone that can help us. You make it sound so natural. I think for me at least one of the hardest things is that post-fellowship phase where you're kind of like you know there's lots of things you want to be doing with your time and you know, maybe studying is a low priority for some people. Certainly, it was hard for me to consider doing anything of that sort. Did you have like a mentor who helped guide you in that decision? Because you did mention that you had a few really good mentors. Yeah. What was your relationship like with them? Like, how did that really work? I knew yeah. that they expected certain standards of me. They expected certain clinical standards. They expected certain professional standards. But in so many ways, that made it easy because you knew where the bar was and you rose to yeah. meet it. I found that really helpful. I was always completely encouraged both, you know, at home, at work. No one ever said, no, no, you can't do that. No, you shouldn't do that. I've thought about it. It was always yes. So, yeah, it was just green lights sort of all the way. I find myself now in a position in my career where people are approaching me to be their mentor. I'm a bit of a loss, really, on how to do something like that effectively. What, What did you find beneficial from your mentors? You mentioned that that expectation sort of being implied almost, not even really being enforced, but just, you know, they just expected a certain yeah, standard. it was just and there. Then, it was just, yeah. So expectation probably the biggest one. Support, I mean, I think it was just knowing if I ever needed anyone in my corner, if I never ever needed anyone to support me, back me up, there was never going to be a question that they would just do it. Uh, I knew that, I mean, had your back is a sort of odd expression, but I, I just knew that. And they were absolutely encouraging. Yep, go do that. Yep. Absolutely do that. Oh, that's a good idea. Why don't you do that? It was very encouraging. I mean, probably one in particular, but it was it was the whole group. And as I said, it was only a small consultant group at the time. The other thing that I noticed when you were just telling me sort of how you hopped, skipped and jumped your way between sort of different things, where did your interest in teaching come about? Was that something that you always had? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I'm probably a repressed primary school teacher. I love the whiteboard. I love the whiteboard <laughs> markers. Yeah. It's interesting now when I reflect back on it, I probably always had this in me, but I think part of it comes back to the systems thinking. I think that I, and I never knew this about myself until recently really, I can look at a problem and very quickly work out how to solve it, how to fix it. It's the same thing when I'm trying to teach something complicated. I can very naturally create a structure to it. And so I think when I teach, that just comes across. It just comes across quite naturally. So I found teaching easy and I found people liked it. They enjoyed it because suddenly there was some structure to what they were trying to learn. I never struggled to create the structure, which I know is, again, a very lucky place to be coming from. But having done lots of teaching sort of since fellowship and educational courses you know I've had to do a variety of things like film myself and watch myself back try to learn you know what mannerisms you have and use and you know all your filler words and waving your arms around and all sorts of things that you do which really made you look at yourself and go oh I didn't know that about myself right I didn't know this about myself and one of the things I didn't realize about myself was that structure so it was quite funny they showed me a clip of me teaching almost in fast forward it's like a whole tree just sort of grew quite organically from stick figures that that started so I think again 
it was just a natural progression. So, I mean, I was very lucky. I got to go and do the Stanford course, which, again, was the only person in Australia that's had that opportunity. And it was just, again, timing. It was on when I could go and the, the, the district was very supportive. And they said, we really want to bring it back here. We think you're the person to go do it. Can you do it? Um, which was fantastic. I've done a lot of other types of teaching. So there was a course called Emergency Life Support, which is not really running very much locally anymore, but it still goes internationally. And it's a fantastic course. It's almost like the medical version of an EMST. But the reason it was so helpful is when you go to teach in developing countries, it's again, it's just a, a place for people to start from. It's a, a base from which to begin. That's quite a fun course to teach. And again, they sort of did things like film you and, and make you watch yourself back and stuff. Doing a lot of work now with the Australian Resuscitation Council and Advanced Life Support and so on. So, so there's lots of things out there and, on, and all the disaster teaching. So, yes, I'm doing lots of teaching. I I don't know how I started. I just started and then I yeah. sort of kind of propelled along to the next thing and the next thing, all of which made me better, I think. There was more depth to what I did. From what you're telling me, it sounds like there is an element there where you sort of went about actively reflecting on those things that make you a good teacher and maybe some of those areas where you could improve. How did you get that feedback? I find, you know, in my experience, people are oftentimes just so overwhelmingly grateful that you've given time to teach them. But I find the feedback can be really flimsy. And so I find that desire that I have within myself to maybe become better uh, kind of very hard to figure out how to do that. Yeah, so there's two parts to that. I think you need to get feedback, obviously, from the learners, the people you are teaching. You could be the most knowledge-filled person in the world, but if you're not able to impart it, you know, there's a real problem. So you absolutely need the feedback from the learners. But I think... I found the courses really helpful because what I was learning was not the content because you were, I mean, you're the content expert, but what I was learning was different ways to change things that I do to kind of engage different types of learners. So people who are visual learners as opposed to people who are oral learners and so on. So just how can I change things slightly to try to engage somebody new? All those other bits about, you know, filming yourself and listening to how you speak and all those things, they're almost like icing on your cake, but you've got to get the cake right. How do you keep things fresh with your teaching? So say if someone asks you to do a talk that you've done a few times before, which I imagine would be quite common for you, do you go back and revisit the information and how you're presenting it? Or is it more just kind of like going through a routine again? And because you're so confident in the topic that you're presenting and you've done it so many times, it just, it just yeah, comes so natural. Um, a bit of both. So sometimes yeah. like if someone's, you know, suddenly fallen out of, you know, we, we lost a speaker and we need someone to fill in, I'm, I can yeah. just get up and speak. It's not a problem. If I'm giving a presentation, I obviously re-review it because, you know, how long is it going to be? Who's the intended audience? Is that what this previous version of the talk was? I always like to put in new events. So, you know, I'll, I'll talk about different disaster events perhaps, but over time there's an, a new one that's come along that's more recent or people are much more aware of. So I try to sort of bring it in so that it's it's more current, but the concepts are still the same. Did you ever find public speaking challenging? I used to be the, the one in my class that was the reader at church, at, at the school assembly and all yeah. like that. So I was I was always the reader. <laughs> so yeah. I, I'm yeah. quite happy to do that. I, I don't mind public speaking at all. That doesn't bother me. I don't like debating. I don't, I've never been a debater. If you tell me you've got 45 minutes to talk to this group, I'm happy to talk. And are there any techniques or strategies you use when you're giving lectures to keep people engaged? You almost have to think of it like a little production it's like a stage production that needs to be visually engaging you need to want to be there like if you're bored or you're tired they're not going to be engaged I like to put in some personal stories or personal anecdotes or personal cases or things like that just so that people can identify with you and, and with the topic 
I did try. There was something, you know, I mean, obviously most people use PowerPoint. There was another version of PowerPoint that was all swirly and would, I can't remember what it was oh. called, but it would merge from one thing yeah. to another. I tried it a few times and I think everyone felt nauseous, including myself. It's like, <laughs> okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. I try to keep most of it simple, you know, little videos or little bits and pieces that will break up a monotonous um, topic. I think for me, the, the biggest thing is giving it structure. No, I think that's, that's a really good takeaway point. Do you mind expanding a little bit on the Stanford course? It's funny because the podcast is intimately related to that, I suppose, because Shreyas <laughs> and a few of the, the people who initially started it in a direct response to attending your course, which is, you know, an interesting tie-in. But what does the course involve? It was clearly very inspiring to them. So the Stanford course is interesting. So uh, obviously it initiates or originates from Stanford University. Basically, there's two uh, very senior, one's a clinician, one's a linguist, actually. She's a PhD in linguistics. But they came together as a team and they were really keen to study clinical education and all the variations that can happen with that. So bedside teaching, ward round teaching, you know, lectures, workshops, skill stations. So so the, the whole gamut of how people teach in a clinical setting for medicine. I mean, I think they spent 33 years of their lives sort of doing this and attending varying types of teaching. And Georgina, who's the the lady involved, she sort of copiously writes down verbatim what gets said and then they they analysed it. And and basically when they analysed it, they came up with a framework of seven parts, seven modules, if you like, or seven arms of what helps to create the teaching to be good. They're really simple things like communication of goals and control of the session. So, you know, be that the timing and the pace and the agenda that what they call the learning climate. So that's, you know, the feeling, does the teacher want to be there? Do the students want to be there? Are we doing this in the right way? Should it be a hands-on thing? Should it be a lecture? Like I'm trying to teach you how to intubate me lecturing you on how to do it. It's probably not the ideal format. Mm. Just those sorts of things. So basically they came up with these seven modules and then they ran this course out and people attended, which helped them bring home ways of teaching. And someone in Western Sydney knew of the course and brought them out to run it here. But somehow when it came, I missed it. And so I went back and said, look, if they come back, can you let me know? I'd really like to do the course. And a number of people who attended that course said, oh, all I could think of was you when I was at it. It was, it reminded me of you and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I went and said, look, if it comes back, I'd really like to be on the list of people that get to know and, and attend. That was all I said. And the next thing you know, I found myself in the US for a month, <laughs> not only attending the course, but actually learning how to deliver the course and then bringing it back. So the way that it runs is it's a licensed course and to deliver it, you have to be licensed by them to to teach it. Turns out I'm the only Australian who's done that part of it. A lot of of people have attended the course, but no one's done that. How to teach the course and then bring it back. And it it was very intense. I thought when I went there, there'd be a whole bunch of us in a room. It turned out there were six of us for the, the month. So we got to know each other very well. First, we have to do the course as participants. Yeah. Then we got a lot of reading material, like lots of papers to read about varying types of education and so on. Um, then we had to break it apart. So we really dissected the course out and, and broke it down into its completely tiny little bite-sized pieces. And then we put it all back together and we had to deliver it to a group at Stanford. Oh, wow. So you had to teach it there we and there itself. It yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was quite intense. It was a very busy month. Yeah. But I'm glad now I did it. It was very interesting I really enjoy teaching it. The only thing when I do teach it, I feel sorry for the participants because 
I'm the only teacher, so they have to listen to me for, for quite a lot of the day. But um, we do break it up with videos and role plays and a few other bits and pieces. But it is quite an intense. I run it as a two-day course. Yep. In Stanford, they like to do it over seven weeks, so two oh, hours wow. okay. each week. But yep. it, from our point of view, trying to get shift workers, like trying to yeah. get the group back, it, it's impossible. So um, I prefer to run it as two days. So, yeah, so that's what Stanford is. And and from there, as you say, there are many ideas. I've had people come and ask me to um, peer review their teaching. So using the, the modules, can you watch me give my next workshop or presentation and give me feedback? So I've had um, colleagues ask for that. As you say, the podcast came up as an idea. It was sort of started as a journal club idea and then became a podcast idea. And, you know, very excited that it's going forward so well. So there's been quite a few bits and pieces that have come up because of it. So it's been quite exciting. It's definitely sort of proven itself out because I remember speaking to Shreyas when he attended those two days and he was very inspired by his interaction with the course and sort of, you know, forced him to be creative in ways I don't think he fully appreciated that he could be. It's definitely interesting from my perspective to see those sort of effects of the course. I really like to tell people from the courses, it's about giving them more tools for their toolbox. As an educator, what can you add to your own repertoire? I always find it really difficult sometimes translating theoretical concepts into practical scenarios. And I experience that at times clinically, but I definitely experience it when I look into education literature. I'm by no means someone who has any postgraduate sort of qualifications in medical education, but certainly I find some of those concepts really hard to translate when it comes to day-to-day teaching. Is that something you found with the Stanford course or is it just so structured that no, it kind of all just works? It's got a really good structure and it's very practical. And once I attended it, I understood why everybody saw me in it. Like I, I could yeah. see what they were seeing. So it felt like a very natural way to it, teach. It was very natural. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing is, as much as, you know, I've said I did this disaster piece and then I did this education piece, you know, if you like, I can say I've got a simulation piece. Yeah. But in lots of ways, I use all the skills for all of the things I do. So it's not like I separate them out. They all yeah. kind of meld and merge together. Because another course I did, which, again, was really, really useful, was the Harvard simulation. And I did that very early. I think I was just one year post-fellowship, maybe two years. I did that very, very early. And if people are interested, I mean, it's it's definitely very intense, a lot of hard work, but but absolutely worth it. How long does that course go over? It's four or five days, but they do come to Australia. They do run at different times. Um, And it just just runs through principles of simulation, does it? Yeah, and you have to do a whole bunch of role plays and debriefing and you get every version of challenging debrief in the course. So when you meet real debriefs, you you think, oh, this is is fine compared to what I'm going to do. So, yeah, I started with that and then I did the, you know, the ASIM version of at that time it was acne I think they're still running it but not nearly as much as it had been before so did a whole bunch of simulation things at that time as well yeah and what was the driver to get you into simulation did you just see it as a natural extension of your teaching it was just a, yeah it was just another yeah. part of the teaching um yeah and was simulation sort of newish back then or was it, it was well established? Yeah. so when I, I remember vividly we had just started and anesthetics had embraced it and they had a very high-end course that they were running one of the consultants at Westmead was also working at the Sim Centre and asked myself and Naren to go over and help them set up this yeah. course. So, yeah, we we basically were there and helped to design this course and from there that led to working, you know, with them. And at one point I was working there a day a week. So I, I did quite a lot of stuff with them, a whole variety of different types of courses. Oh, yeah, wow. 
I mean, and I would encourage everyone to do this. It's always good to work with different teams and your your normal base hospital just gives you different experiences. People have different ways of, of doing things. It's always beneficial. The natural extension of that stuff was that that led to critical incident debriefs here. So if we have a you know a resource that's difficult or uh, anything really, is it? And I'll just get a random email or a call saying, can you please debrief this? And, and I actually like to go into a what I'll call cold, where I don't know too much about the background and I, I let the team explain to me what happened, what yeah. they were worrying about, what they're thinking. Was that a technique that you developed just by practising doing something like this? Or yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think with that you just have to practise and, you know, there, there will be times where you think, oh, I probably shouldn't have said things that way. I wish I'd phrased it differently. But until you start to do it, you don't know. And then now I find I think that a lot less than what I used to. <laughs> It is one of those things that as you practice, you do get better at that, um, that whole process. can be. I find debriefing really, really challenging. You definitely have my admiration for that one. I was wondering if I could ask you a few questions around the role in which I, I sort of know you best in, which is your sort of deputy directorship role at Westmead Emergency. I think you oversaw or helped oversee the vast majority of my training. And again, I think demonstrated a management style that, that I sort of have tried to incorporate into my own way of doing things for certain aspects of my life. What's been your experience in, in the position? Have you enjoyed it? And uh, it looks like you're having fun from the outside. <laughs> What's the experience like for you? Yeah, no, no, that's a, it's a good question. I enjoy all aspects of, of my job, like all, all of the varying parts of the roles. So Deputy Director role, I think part of it is just knowing that our team is amazing and allowing natural abilities and talents and differences within the group to shine through. I actually love that we're all so different and that people aren't just a cookie cutter version of each other. And we've all got slightly different, you know, skills and interests and talents and utilizing people in the best way to let them grow, but to obviously you're getting the job done, but you're letting them do something they're enjoying and you just, you know, moving things forward. It's fantastic. I mean, I think it really came to the fore during COVID. The amount of work that this department did was extraordinary and I think it was really recognized and respected both you know outside our department within the hospital but certainly by other hospitals we were getting calls from interstate saying how can we set up you know can you give us some advice and so on and the emergency department always made to, to be nothing but proud of that whole experience it was fantastic during that time because you knew exactly okay we need to set up you know a new ward or a new whatever and someone would be good at the very finicky checking, the, you know, the the drugs and the whatever. Someone else would be good at physically, you know, um, making sure all the equipment got there. Someone else would be good at doing the phones and setting things up. Like it was just everyone had something that they were good at and could contribute. And between us, we got it all done. I was sort of in the middle of that cyclone. It felt like there was definitely a unified direction in which the whole department was moving in. And yeah, I think we were at simultaneously doing things productively and finding our feet. It's interesting. It was an interesting point in time. How do you think your management style is like best defined and what are some of the strengths in, in how you manage people? It feels like an interview. <laughs> well, it is a little bit of an interview, I suppose, because <laughs> I am reading questions that I've been asked to ask a little bit. of. I, I don't even know how I would define my management style. Yeah. I don't even know if I have one. I just try to listen to you know what the issues might be often as I said I can often see a solution but I think what my superpower now is I know who to go to or where to go to help solve a problem so and that's just contacts within the hospital contacts within the state just knowing okay yep I know where we can get the answer to this question or how we can we can make a a solution And for your other areas that you're you know you've obviously got a lot of areas of interest and you've done a lot of postgraduate 
sort of study outside of the fellowship itself. Did you do anything to strengthen your skills in this area or did you find that everything kind of fed into to each other at that point? Well, they all fed into each other, but I mean, I, yeah. I did actively go out and look for the masters in disaster medicine and I did actively go and look for some of the simulation courses when I was starting to do that, that work. Um, and then some of the others just sort of fill in the path along the way. Yeah. Okay. Um, and did you do anything specifically around medical management? Or is that something that you kind of learned on the job while you no, did? No, I haven't done anything yeah. at all about that. It'd be an interesting you know, place to explore, but no, I never did. A few of the listeners were also wondering what your experience was like being you know, a, a woman in a position of leadership in a busy tertiary hospital and how that's maybe informed how you, how you develop relationships and how that's informed, your again, your management style and how you run things. Did you have any thoughts or reflections on that? I think in lots of ways I... I do feel like I've been always very lucky. So like I said to you, at home, at work, being female was never a, a setback. It was I was considered the same as my brother, my sister and I. Like, we were just encouraged as much. Every opportunity was as equal. I didn't hit lots of no's. I didn't hit lots of roadblocks. And then, like I said, when I started training, I was in a really strong cohort and it was a very equal cohort. It was very, very mixed. I think training at Westmead, the gender issue was never an issue. And I think I did a locum once. I turned around at one point and I had this little trail of people following after me like ducklings yeah. wanting to go everywhere I went. And, and then, yeah, the feedback was, oh, we just so loved having a, a female consultant, but which for me was such a strange uh, thing to hear because that had never been an issue like where I had trained or where, I'd, you know, prim my primary work. So it was just interesting that as you sort of go to more smaller places or, or more rural places or, or people like, oh, it's really good to have a female. So I just think for me, everything is about balance, I think. I do think in a way that's why our Westmead leadership team works because I think Matthew and I are a balance. We're not the same. So yeah. I think in a lot of ways that works. But yeah, it's, it's hard to know. I don't know that yeah. I've changed anything I do or the way that I am because I'm a woman. I think I just am yeah. the way I am. And Thanks for that. I think it's always interesting to hear from people's you know, different perspectives and different experiences. I think it just helps sort of inform everyone on what everyone else is going through. I think that's really key to know. I did have a few other questions just before we wrapped up on your mentors that you had at the very beginning. Do you still keep in touch with them? And how has that relationship evolved over time? Do you still go to them for advice? Do you still find value in the relationship from that perspective? Or has it changed as you've become more accomplished and you find that now you're sort of steering your own ship and not really requiring that kind of help? Yeah. Look, I think it's always good to have people that you look up to and that you respect the opinions of because you will always encounter a problem that you've not encountered before you're like oh I don't really know my gut instinct is to do this but I, I wouldn't mind a sounding board and I guess if anything that's more what those people become they're your respected valued sounding board that you yeah. can kind of run your own thoughts by but you probably already know what you know think but you, it's just mm -hmm. lovely to have them in lots of ways just reflect it back to you so you, you're a bit more confident in what you decided to do. Do those people now, do they make up the colleagues that you sort of came up with or is it very much still those mentors that you go to or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both. That's certainly a theme that I'm noticing when I talk to people via this sort of medium, that people have really put a lot of emphasis on the network that they've put a lot of effort in building around themselves. And, you know, those checks and balances that exist within that network is what keeps you on the path towards you know, whatever it is that you want to go towards. Um, and it sounds like that's a similar case with you. But I think that's me done for questions. So thank you so much for your time, Kavita. I appreciate you're very, very busy. And I found that super, super interesting. So thank you. No, thank you.